A Sufi master once uh, began his discourse at the moment a bird landed on the windowsill and started to chirp, quieting the crowd and himself as they listened to the bird sing. And then when the bird stopped singing and flew away, he said, that's the discourse for t this evening. I was hoping the bird would fly in, but it looks like I'm left to <laughs> chirp away here. <laughs> so uh, I think what is important to understand uh, from the start is the direction we're taking in our meditation and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I would like to do this as a way to challenge all of us from the newest beginner to the um, most experienced sitter. <clears throat> because if the Dharma doesn't challenge, then it comforts. And I weigh in on the challenging side. Uh, we have far too much comfort in our life to use this as another form of repose and indulgence. So um, I call forth um, that deep sea fishing that I spoke about last night. Let's throw the line in deep. Let's just see where this thing goes. Because at this particular juncture in history, it's not just for our own uh, salvation. It's for the planet. It's for each other. And unless we really feel the tie-in between ourselves and all human life and all animal life and all planetary life, <clears throat> we, don't, we, we, we often don't have the resolve to move. We get lost in a kind of apathy. So uh, let's look at this thing called Dharma, because it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, right? It's a, it's a, it's, there's no question that it's the worst medicine we'll ever take, because what it's asking us to do is relinquish. Now, what thief would you let into your house that promised it was going to steal everything you owned? <laughs> Unless that thief was going to give you back something, right? Unless it, was, unless it had a gift of its own. And so the Dharma, in one perspective, looks like uh, we're being robbed and being asked to continually relinquish and back up, so to speak, from our positions. But from another, it looks like fulfillment. It looks like contentment. It looks like Love. And so it's from that perspective that we can gain some sense and trust that this process has our well-being at, at stake. That it may be difficult, but that it is doable. <clears throat> and I'd like to just reframe how I began last yesterday, uh, last night, about looking from noise uh, to stillness as the Dharma journey. And I want to take it off its regular track, its regular direction, because most of us get involved in Dharma. We have no sense at all 
where this thing goes. We have some way of conceding that we have to become more inclusive and open to our minds. And it's kind of an inward battle that we can even do that. But we fundamentally, what is at stake here isn't really known to us. And we continue our Dharma practice in a kind of a piecemeal fashion that is helpful. There's no question. Our character develops and we mature as individuals. We find life easier and more comfortable to live. And we're happier. And those are tremendous benefits. But those benefits are not liberating benefits. We still die. We still suffer. We still feel our isolation and loneliness. We still feel cut off and unable to bridge that gap. No matter how much self-improvement, no matter how much we strive for a more complete and inclusive sense of self, we still have in the back deep recessions of our lives a deep sense of isolation. And I'm not interested, and I hope that there's enough resolve in each of us here, not interested in living a partial life, a partial happiness, a partial completion. If this thing offers what it's said to offer, then let's bring it on. Enough uh, timidity. I don't know if it's right for you, but okay, well, on we go. (laughs) So this story of our species begins many millions of years ago, and I want to take us back to a particular moment in that history in which we, as a species, developed the capacity for abstract thinking. It's a tremendous benefit to our species and to the human uh, being that we could start thinking in terms, not just in terms of what was in front of our eyes, but actually conceptualize the use and obstacles and objects that were in front of our eyes to project uh, a construction project or a different homeland or a different way of using those objects that could benefit us in the future. And it is because of that single adaptive evolutionary response that we have everything that we have available to us, the bridges we construct, the roads, the buildings, our lives, And so that sense of abstract conceptualization has tremendous payoff as a species. And it's hardwired into our brains now so that we think routinely in abstract thought and in conceptual ideas. Now that's all fine and good, except that when you start thinking in terms of abstractions, then there is a formation of a sense of me that is figuring future references for what it's going to be doing with those abstract ideas. The abstract ideas construct a sense of me along with what I'm going to construct. And those two arise proportional to their predominance. And this culture is at the apex of abstraction, and so the sense of self is very strong 
very strong-willed in this society. And again, you know, so what's the big problem with that? Well, it's that problem that Buddhism tries to resolve. You see, it's not... The, the, when we start having ideas about things, then we lose the reference of what those things really are. And we lose ourselves in what those things could be, right? What the object, the potential within the object, the manipulation of the object, where I could make this happen this way and that that way. And so as we build that thinking and make that thinking more predominantly the way we think, then every moment has an abstract virtual reality compared and, and, and concurrent with the moment as it's arising, the manifestation of the real moment. So there's the reality of the moment and then our abstracting about how we could improve a little bit on this moment. What we could do here to tweak it a little, how we could turn the dials, make it oh so better. And it's a, it's, it gives us a sense of power. It gives us a tremendous sense of individuality it gives us an overbearing sense of power because you don't have to take life the way it is. We can take life according to our abstract ideas. We can get up and turn up the temperature. Another time we can enlarge in this room. We could rearrange this room. We can do anything to it. We can get rid of the neighbor next to us and ask them to move or move from them. But everything we conjure up to do to solve the problems that we are having in the moment that create the abstraction in the first place are all future-oriented, you see? None of them are happy now. The person who's restless, the temperature of the room, whatever disagreement we are having, in the moment it's happening, is happening. And it's our idea, our conceptual idea, that it could be rearranged in the future. So it's always not this time frame, but the next time frame that we're acting upon. And so time and distance become a, a, a part, a literal part of how we live. We live intimately with time and distance. Time being how much, how long it will take me to construct what I need to construct to get over the problem that's at hand. And distance is the journey I have to travel and the things I have to do in order to get to that point so that this problem can be succumbed. So. I'm just building you a frame of reference that is entirely genetically and evolutionarily and, and uh, uh, a process of our adaptive evolutionary history. And the problem that then surfaces from that adaptation and evolution. So what, so what does it leave us with? It leaves us with a remote idea of oneself based in time, conceptually, based in time, being held together with the ideas of how the future will provide a better reference for me than the present moment. Now let's start putting our suffering in relationship to that equation. Because it sounds grand so far, doesn't it? build the Brooklyn Bridge.
and to also how noisy it is. Do you see? To keep ourselves going as an abstract idea, we have to keep speaking to ourselves. We have to keep ruminating. We have to keep exploring other ideas. We have to keep offering other realities. We have to do that until we have become so convinced in the reality of the idea of me being the truth that there is fear of even letting go into stillness and quiet. We have no protection. We don't have any, we have no, we have, have an idea. An idea can't form itself in stillness. And therefore, I can't form myself from quietude. So I have to have noise going all the time. And you can see how autonomous it has become. You sit down, you don't want to think. Well, maybe you do, but that's not the instructions. The instructions are just to place your attention on your breath and be quiet. And if it were so easy, my God, wouldn't it be wonderful? (laughs) Bell rings, ah. (laughs) And the struggle of today, for most of you, since it was the first day of the retreat, has been the enormous tension of understanding how driven we are that is not a willful, we're not willfully doing it. It's driving itself. It's neurons firing. Geez, talk about out of control. Just look, spend... 10 seconds with your mind. But you can see why we keep it going, because since for the last million years, or however long it's been since this adaptation and evolution has occurred, we've been investing in this form of expression of ourselves in order for what? So we can secure, we weren't very, you know, when we were out on the Serengeti Plains, what did we have? We didn't have speed. We had like two legs that even a jackrabbit could run faster then. We weren't very ferocious. We, our teeth aren't like, you know, I don't think it's going to make a lion cower. We didn't have strength. What we had was cunning. That's why we survived. And that cunning came from our ability to abstract, to get up a tree, to create a weapon, to fire a rifle. And so we've depended upon that as our form and expression of security. But now we are seeing lions where there aren't any. I mean, we're not out there anymore, but we still see lions because that's the way the mind has shaped its reality, to think in terms of enemy, to think in terms of self-preservation. And the self has become a given within all of that. It's a, it's a fact. It's not even a questionable fact. We start out sitting and we're just, this is me. And these things are rising and they're all in me. And the me is just a given. It's just... It's just the reality I have to live with, the mind I've got. 
Oh, we'd like a better mind, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And the, the Dharma, the Dharma is pointing to something that seems to take away, seems to be asking for us to give away something that is so valuable. What? I mean, within this trance that I have created from my abstract thinking, because it is a trance, I have all the meaning. Everything in life I have ever dreamt for is up ahead of me, is reachable. And in purpose and intentionality, and, and it's just a rich virtual reality that we have created extraordinarily rich because we can make it anything we want. Extraordinarily rich and powerful because we are the creator of it. Now why should we give that away? Because as we start getting quieter, our power starts eroding. When we're not constantly inwardly conversing to ourselves, we feel less defined. We feel less in control. We feel less knowledgeable. We feel like we're losing everything that our life has been about. And not just our lives, but our ancestral lives. So it's a tremendous stake here. This is not a casual dance. This is, this is asking us for something that I better consider. I better look at this. And so, as we look out from the world that has been created from this level of trance, and as our Dharma practice begins to show us, without equivocation, the absurdity of what we've been doing to ourselves, that we have been thinking ourselves away from ourselves, that we have created a vast expanse of abstraction, but the reality doesn't, isn't aligned with that at all. In fact, each of us I have the idea of what a good life would mean for me, and we are often pursuing that agenda as an individual, irrespective of the other six billion 
human lives, let alone all the animal species that have long since been extinguished from our needs, to particularize our own satisfaction. But what does it matter? Because our intention and purpose is being fulfilled. Why worry? Because a few creatures, perhaps I've never even seen, like the polar bear, happen to be facing some difficulties. See, we, as we become afraid of what this may change may be, our defenses grow in solidarity and in strength. We become more righteous, not less. We become more hardened. And you see it now. The irrefutable truth of our climate is in front of our eyes. And yet the entrenched, many of us are entrenching ourselves into the denial, the state of denial. And so too, when we see dharmically what this thing means, what the, the real dharma is pointing to, inside there is a contraction for, for, for survival. Almost a gut level, existential hardening of our right to live. And so we try to do this with some gentleness because for God's sake, it's the only way that we as a species can ever open up is through gentleness and kindness. And as I sit and I begin to touch areas of quietude, briefly, something wonderful begins to assert itself which is not of my control. Thank God. And that is the heart. The heart begins to manifest itself. We genuinely start caring where before there was none. We genuinely feel more at ease. And as we progress, and each of us, even if we're beginners, we have probably already experienced some of that progression towards a heart-centered life, a still life, a quiet life. Perhaps it comes, perhaps the first marker of that is the genuine desire not to hurt anybody anymore. I just don't want to hurt anyone. Do you feel that in your life? 
And that's the first marker that there is a movement, a transmutation, transcendent energy that's moving from the mind and its captive abstraction into the heart, into an inclusivity of the heart. And accompanying that movement of energy into the silence of silent night, into the wonder, of the wind. There comes a fullness, a clarity of seeing. An irrefutable confidence in the way this is moving. And even though, as we become quieter, the sense of self, the abstraction, quiets. I mean, that's what it means to be quiet, is we're quieting the abstraction. And therefore, time, which is built on the abstract, right? The abstract idea of a future being other than now, and the abstract idea of a past being other than now. As our abstractions quiet, so does time. Time doesn't have any relevance except within the relevance of self. And so the moment which <coughs> was relegated in my old trance of abstraction to somewhat an insignificant place in time, because it was a placeholder where I was now, but where I was sure going to go somewhere else soon, becomes not a limited, partial place, but infinite. in which even the remnants of abstraction still moves, but it moves within the infinite. It no longer obscures the infinite in terms of time. And the heart is intuitively sensing an interconnectedness, a oneness. No longer is the individuation predominantly the mode of choice, which has been for a millennium. We have to give an enormous amount of respect for the conditioning of that. <clears throat> but this thief that we have allowed in called the Dharma, is leaving behind something far more precious than what it's taking.
In fact, it is so insignificant what it's taking. Why is it insignificant? Because it was never true. How less insignificant can something be? And so our practice, and I want to get to this point, our practices that we teach in the morning, that we suggest for you, our practices of quietude. That's all. We say relax. Where is there noise in relaxation? Relaxation is the release of tension. Tension is what holds the noise. Tension is the resistance of a strong argument against something, and psychically. But relaxation is the easing, is the opening of that. Relaxation is not a doing, it's a release of tension. We say observe. But the normal way that we observe is an opinionated reference to what we see. We observe, but we normally observe with our ideas fully intact. And then we express not a clear observation, but an observation of our, of our, of our prejudice. And so our observations normally, under normal situations when we're not in a retreat, really are just a replication of the images and abstract ideas that we carry along with us all the time. So we never really listen to anything new, we just hear back our own ideas. But this observation that we're pointing to here is bare observation. Observation without opinionation. So how do we possibly have observation without opinionation when the sense of self is formed through its opinions and its noise? It knows no other way to be other than to be opinionated. That's what the sense of self does. And so when the sense of self, you and I, sit down to observe, we're fully entrenched within the conversation of what we think is going on and the good and appropriate or bad or evil intentions of that particular path practice. So nothing can get through. And so we begin to clear away and to be able to define when we're observing and making noise about what we see and when we're seeing free of noise. And that's a lesson that will take you your entire spiritual journey in order to discern accurately. In fact, that is the spiritual journey. And unless our mind is steadied sufficiently so that we have a reference so that we know when we are being present with something and when we are reflecting and pondering about what it is that we're being present with, to know those two different things, that's the point. That's the point of being on the breath. 
We're not going to be able to shut this thing up. We're not going to be able to practice a certain practice that shuts the mind, quiets the mind, closes it, up, closes it out, shuts the shutters, turns off the radio, nothing. I mean, people have tried that. The Buddha did that for six years before he gave up that nonsense. But is there something, and this is the spiritual question, is there something that holds the sound and is not conditioned by the sound? Is there something that holds the experience, but it itself is not the experience? You see, is there a space that is available, that is possible, that is participatory, that can be, that can be accessed, abided within, that lets us know that sound is arising in the same way that having a radio on in the room, you know when sound is arising. And if we have that, if there is that space, then we also have freedom because you can either listen to the radio or not. But when you only know the radio, we have, there's, no, there's nothing left. There's no choice to be made. You just follow the dictates of what the announcer is saying. So this practice, as we are developing it, first allows us to steady our attention to be able to see and not ruminate upon what we see, but just to see. And then as we get quieter, we begin to draw in all the different subtle forms of noise that we have become our placeholders within our meditation. The places we go and stand upon to suddenly comment upon what it is that's happening as if we were being quiet and no one was watching this particular voice over here. And for most people, it is important, and I think this is the Buddha's gift, is that he showed us a way to access this spaciousness. He gave a detailed way to access this spaciousness that had never before been given, offered. And you, we all start very noisily in our access because that's, the, that's what we bring to it. But if we have the right orientation to the practice and we know that what we're going to, from is the noise and to the stillness, then what we will do all along the way is let the noise be itself without adding any more noise to it, without revolting or being more dramatic than we have to. In fact, that's the struggle that many of you went through today, was 
whether the noise and the drama were going to take precedent over the quiet. And sometimes the noise ran, won out, and sometimes you allowed yourself to be quiet within the noise. And when you let the noise win out, you were in struggled misery with that. Because the whole trance of what distance and time and abstraction did was to create an, Ill, an unmoving object, or whatever the expression is. I'm having a senior moment. So I ask you which will win out. You see, will you be quiet? Will you let your heart trump the situation? Or will we continue to generate more and more layers of sound? in our reactivity and our need for drama. Because that's the direction of simplicity. That's the direction of renunciation. Renunciation isn't a forced restraint. It's the willingness to move towards quiet. It's seeing that quiet is more beneficial than adding any more noise to ourselves. That's all it is. Because when we're quiet, our needs are less. Because our desires quiet along with us. And we get simple. And fear doesn't hold as strong of a reference. Because all fear is and all desire is, is a noisy affront to the reality at hand. It's an abstraction of what could be or what might be fearfully. And as we begin to see through these abstractions as pure concepts, just nonsense, Just nonsense. Then they, they, they have no power any longer. And proportional to our divesting in the power of the noise is our investing in the power of the space that holds that noise. Because the energy has to go one way or the other. There's only two places it can go. It can either go to noise or quietude. That's, the only, that's, where, that's all it can go. And what we have made of Buddhism, for the most part, is a very noisy journey to silence. We may give you a lot of projects to do. We give you a lot of alternative 
references. So many that the maze opens up a whole new chamber and we get lost in it. We don't what, know what direction was I going in? Was it, I was supposed to, to what, who is this? What, when, at least that's the way I felt. But there's a straight line to this thing. We just like making it complicated because we like staying noisy a little longer. It keeps us in place. It keeps us on top of ourselves, in control of our spiritual journey, the master of our own demise. We love that. No greater project than if I can just get rid of myself. Anything, please, but to be quiet. Anything. But quiet is at the center of everything. Before noise, there was quiet. There has to be, because quiet noise comes out of quiet. So the more authentic position is the quiet, not the noise. The noise is the artificial. The default position really is the quiet one. You see, so we're not very far from it. We're just one, in fact, I'll show you how close we are. We're one concept away. How thick is that? But I have to ask you again, do you want it? Or do you want, we want to go on a circuitous route to this thing, journeying across the landscapes of ever more struggle. Now just for this instant, just let us be quiet together. I'm not asking us to do anything to access that quiet. Because if you were to do something, you would be creating noise. What if we're just quiet? There is love. The two reside together. As does everything we most wished for in our heart. There is love. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment or two?
now as we will brush from time to time up against quiet, as we may be now. Don't look at what it's taking away from you, but rather what it is giving you, what it is offering you. The dimension, there's a dimensional shift. It's not giving you the trance of your ideas. It's not giving you a sense of future and past remorse or expectation. But look at how big it is. Look at the size of it. Look at the intimacy and connectedness. Look at the ease and well-being. Look at the caring. And then decide if you want to go back. and enjoy yourself. That is the mark of quiet.